Would you pray with me, please? Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, uh, Father, I, I ask you that you would open all our ears, and not just our ears, that you would open our understanding and that you would open our spirits, that you would open our hearts, Father, to receive your holy word and to let your word and the teaching of your word to be implanted in our hearts. Oh, my precious God, living Lord, we lay ourselves at your feet now, and we ask you to teach us and to reveal to us your Son. Reveal to us what we need to know about your Son, our Lord. Oh, Father God, let this be your word that is spoken and be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I want to encourage you today to please avail yourself of the sheet of paper that is in your bulletins uh, where you can take notes. It could be a loose sheet or it might be a, a part of the bulletin, but it's usually going to be the last sheet in your bulletin. Have your pencils ready, and, and there are pencils in your pews in front of you. Uh, you might want to also have the insert uh, with you, or open your Bibles if you brought your Bibles, or there are Bibles uh, in the pews in front of you. Um, or use your phones or tablets or whatever, but uh, just be in the Word. Be in the Word as I teach you this morning. And I pray the Holy Spirit will guide my words and will guide your understanding and that you might have a vision of Jesus Christ exalted uh, this morning. This morning, this morning today, Following our liturgical calendar, following, you know that we, uh, we have a calendar that uh, kind of informs us what readings to do each week, and, and it does so so that we can have orderly reading of the entire Bible pretty much through the whole year. So the, the calendar helps us be focused on reading our scriptures. Uh, not only every Sunday, but we read it daily. We have a daily calendar and as well as a, a Sunday calendar. But following our liturgical calendar, uh, today is the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany. Uh, it would be the seventh uh, Sunday of Epiphany, but uh, today is the last Sunday of Epiphany. Now, just for your knowledge, epiphany is a Greek word, and it actually means, epi means upon, epaneo means to look, or to see upon, or to look upon. And the reference of the season of epiphany, which, by the way, it began January the 6th. The season of epiphany began January the 6th, and it is a reference to the day in which, um, in which the Magi from the East first looked upon the child. 
in the house. And they found, they came from the east, they found the child with his parents. And they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then we know that they bowed down, and in the imagination of my heart, they get on their face, not just their knees as we're accustomed. I think they just bowed down uh, and got their face before Jesus, and they adored the child. And so Epiphany begins January the 6th, and through the season of Epiphany, I have had the pleasure, uh, together with others, of preaching to you, and we have seen the child, through the season of Epiphany, we have seen the child grow. We have seen the child grow from being a child, certainly no more than two years old. I would even venture maybe a year and a half or a year old. And we have seen him grow into teenage years. Because I preached to you about Jesus being brought to the temple and being lost in the temple, and the parents went home and they forgot the, the child and they found him in the temple. So we saw Jesus grow from being, a ch being born in Bethlehem, a child when the Magi found him, and, and then a teenager in the temple. And eventually, we saw Jesus grow in stature, in physical. We saw him grow emotionally. We saw him grow spiritually. And we saw him grow socially. Because that's what the Bible says, that he grew in all four of those things. And then the next time we saw Jesus through the season of Epiphany, we see him have grown to an adulthood. And we find him in the River Jordan being baptized by John the Baptist. And then some of the last things we saw in the season of Epiphany is that Jesus called his first disciples... And he sat on the mountain and began to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's where we have been during the season of Epiphany. Today, again, is the last Sunday of Epiphany. This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday, we're going to have our service at 7 p.m. with the imposition of ashes and a Eucharistic service. And Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent. The season of Lent. For 40 days and 40 nights, we are going to follow Jesus. We're going to be, during the season of Lent, we're going to follow Jesus from the mountain of transfiguration in the northern area of Galilee, we're going to follow him from the mountain of transfiguration. We're going to fo uh, follow him to Jerusalem in the south. We're going to follow him to Jerusalem on the south and to the events of Holy Week and Easter and Easter Sunday. So during the season of Lent, you're not supposed to see the map yet, but it's there. It's there. So 
That is very fine. I, I do want you to, to look at the map. Um, but during the season of Lent, we're going to be walking with Jesus from the Mount of Transfiguration down to Jerusalem, to the cross, and then to Easter morning. That's what we're going to do during the season of Lent. And my prayer is that you're going to enter into a season of Lent that is going to be extremely meaningful, extremely focused, and, and that will bless you in your walk with Christ together. He's going to lead us in this journey through the season of, of Lent. I also want to um, now perhaps refer to the map uh, that this is the area, this is the area that is, is called pretty much Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, this is the area where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter rushes forward and he declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession of Peter when Jesus asked the question, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And I think it's very, very important that we recognize not just the confession that Peter gives, but that we recognize how Jesus answers to his confession. What Jesus says to Peter is, and I say you are Peter. Okay? And he says, he says, just the, the few verses before what we're dealing with today, he says, you did not receive this from observation. You received this for revelation. Through revelation of the Father in heaven who has given it to you. In other words, a lot of people had opinions about who Jesus was. Everybody saw something. If he was a great teacher, they said he was a prophet. If he did miracles, they said he, he was a, a miracle worker. He may have been John the Baptist resurrected because their sermons were similar about the kingdom of God. If, if, they, say, if they saw him do miracles, oh, you must be Elijah. Elijah has returned. Everybody had an opinion on Jesus based on observation. But Jesus says that what Peter said is by revelation. God gave it to him when Peter said, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's how important that confession is. It's not Peter out of him, his own blurting out. It's that God has revealed something to him and he just pushed it out. This is who you are because God has revealed it to me. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's in that precise area. And so this is where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves in one of the mountains in the area of Caesarea Philippi, most likely Mount Hermon, a high, probably the highest peak in that area. Most commentators believe that's where Jesus was. Others tend to say Mount Tabor, which is nearby, but I personally believe that it's Mount Hermon. Okay, that's, that's where Jesus was. 
and that's where we find ourselves today. We are told that he, uh, he goes to a mountain in northern Galilee, and, um, and, and, and we, we know that as we start reading chapter 17, it says, after six days. That's how it begins. The, cha- the chapter begins with those words, after six days, meaning after six days after Peter had confessed him. After six days of those events, it says that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus had 12 disciples, but he also had a smaller group that were kind of his greatest, uh, uh, his greatest friends or his greatest, the people he used the most. Okay, and among them was Peter and James and John. And so he left the other disciples down the mountain, and he goes up the mountain with them. Matthew and Mark leave it there. Luke adds the fact that they had gone up to pray. Nothing unusual. I'm pretty sure the disciples went with Jesus a lot of places, and they went to prayer. So they they were confident that that was just another time when Jesus was going to model for them prayer, and he was retreating in a way, someplace quiet, away from the crowds, away from the other disciples, and he was going to go with them to pray on the mountain. So he leads them up a mountain, uh, and they are assuming that they're going to pray. At least that was their expectation. The least of their expectations was that they were going to experience a momentous occasion in the life of Jesus Christ that they had never seen ever before. You and I sometimes assume we know what's ahead, and the loveliest days in our lives is when God surprises us. We may think it's going to be prayer as usual, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and He can lead you into tremendous prayer, into singing, into, into worship, into tears, into all sorts of things. Where God meets you, it's holy ground. And, and what we find is, I believe the disciples just thought this was going to be a common and regular day a common and regular prayer retreat. And what happens is that they experience Jesus in a way they had never experienced him before. The fact is, and I want you to understand this because this is important, the fact is that the transfiguration, what occurs in this mountain, in Mount uh, Hermon, is the fulcrum, please understand this, this event is the centerpiece, is the fulcrum of the gospel. It divides the early ministry of Jesus from the latter ministry of Jesus. This is the moment, a defining moment in the life of Jesus Christ and in the life of his mission. 
in the early part of his ministry, Jesus had come into the world. He had been born, like I told you, and he had grown, and he had taught, and he had preached, and he had announced the kingdom of God, and he had performed a number of miracles. The second half of his ministry, Jesus begins to announce that he is going to die. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be abused. He's going to be whipped. And he's going to be martyred. And on the third day, he will rise again. Those announcements begin after the transfiguration event. So the transfiguration divides the early ministry of Jesus from the latter ministry of Jesus. The other thing I want you to see with me is that God the Father speaks at both of these events. In the baptism of Jesus, they see the heavens open, the Spirit descending and aligning upon Jesus, and they hear the Father's voice, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And now that he's about to begin the latter part of his mission, the fulfillment of why he came, once again we hear the Father speak from the cloud, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I want you to understand that. We are at the mountain, and we're about to experience with the disciple something that should be unforgettable to our eyes, to our minds, and to our hearts. Transfiguration, our English word transfiguration, in the Greek, it actually is the word metamorphosis. Is the word metamorphosis, meta change of form, meta form, metamorphosis. What they experienced, them that were just thinking that they were coming to pray, normal prayer retreat, they experienced Jesus completely transformed in their presence, completely changed. Everything they had thought they knew about Jesus was completely transformed. His face, his clothes, his whole being was in a moment changed into a light like they had never seen before. And fear and, and trembling came upon them and they began to scramble for meaning, for understanding, and for words. This is, this is how, how the Gospels say. The Gospels say that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. His face shone like the sun. The person they had touched before, the person they had heard before, the person that ate with them, the person they were so familiar with them became completely unfamiliar to them. 
He was completely transformed in such a light like you look at the sun and you can't see. The light that just seemed to have exploded. Whatever your image is of the Big Bang, imagine the light just flowed out of Christ and his whole being and his whole face and all about him just exploded with a light that they had never seen before. This was not what they were expecting. And they, like me, would have fallen on our faces in fear, trembling, questioning. And as I said, lacking words, because once again, Peter puts his foot in his mouth as he always does. Peter immediately says, Lord, it's so good we are here. Why don't we build three little booths here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and let us all stay in the mountaintop. Who cares about the rest of the people down there, the mountain? Who cares about the mission? Who cares about the other disciples, the three of us and the three of you? We just stay up here and let's enjoy glory. See, that's, that's the statement of a man who's trying to find words and he has no idea what he's saying. He thinks he's pleasing Jesus and, and he's just putting his foot in his mouth big, big time. Well-intentioned, because Peter was always well-intentioned. He just, out of his lack of understanding and, and lack of knowledge, he would just open his mouth and all kinds of things would come out at times. What they were experiencing is that Jesus changed right before their eyes. His clothing and all of himself became so radiant, so extremely radiant. I think one of the Gospels says, so white more than a fuller's clothing, more than if you had watched this thing in the highest of Clorox, it wouldn't have come out as clear and as white as you see here. This, this experience. Here for the first time since Jesus left his glory in heaven, for the first time in their lives since Jesus left his glory in heaven to become a man, and covered himself in flesh at the incarnation, they and us today get to see Jesus in his full divine glory. Now, I'm using this analogy, and I understand the analogies that... I'm going to give you two analogies. Both of them I need you to forgive me because I think they're so inadequate, but I hope that they convey an idea because... The reality is greater and bigger than the analogies. But it is as if Jesus, in all of his glory in heaven, when he was born, he just covered himself in, in flesh. Just covered himself in flesh. And the analogy fails completely in that Jesus was completely man. He didn't just cover himself like a facade or a costume. 
Jesus did not. He fully became, inside and out, he became fully man. But the picture in my mind that I want to convey is that Jesus fully covered himself in the flesh of humanity, but he was always the divine Son of God in him. The other analogy, which is inadequate, and I ask you to forgive me, is Clark Kent. Clark Kent, to everyone, is just a mild reporter with a suit and a tie and a shirt and glasses, and nobody recognizes him. But the moment that he's needed, he opens up, and the truth comes out, which is Superman. They're pure analogies. They fail the reality and the truth of what Jesus is and who Jesus is. But to me, they work in trying to understand what the disciples saw. You see, all that they understood and saw disappeared for a moment, and all of the divine glory of Jesus just burst forth as they had never seen or experienced him before. He just plotted out in a radiance that must have made that mountain shine with the glory of God. And the disciples hardly might have even been able to open their eyes to see what they were seeing. Jesus was changed, transfigured, with all of the glory that he had prior to the incarnation and all of the glory that he was to return to when he ascended to heaven again. And all of the glory that he's coming back with, with the angels, that glory, that divine glory, is the same glory you and I are going to experience in heaven in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That glory. But now they only knew him as the man. But he gave them an opportunity to look beyond the flesh into who he really was, the eternal, divine, supernatural Son of the living God, the God-man, the man who is God. That's what they experienced for a moment in that mountaintop. And we are told that they saw two other men with Jesus, and they were conversing with Jesus. And what they are seeing really are two men come back from the dead. Moses had died years and years ago. Elijah was transferred to heaven bodily, but he disappeared. And what they're seeing in a way is that both of them are still very much alive. Because in God, all who believe in him never die. They don't disappear. They are living. What they are seeing in Moses and Elijah are shadows of the resurrection to come. They were alive, alive in God. And they show up in this image, which sometimes may be called a theophany, or it may be called, called a Christology, or, or a Christophany, which is an appearance of the divine in Christ. The appearance of God in, in some form that is visible. That's what they are experiencing at this moment in this mountain. And they see these other men, Moses and Elijah, 
speaking with Jesus. One of the things we need to recognize, there's a couple of things that we need to recognize. Uh, we are to recognize that both Moses and Elijah are messengers. Okay? Moses and Elijah are important messages for God, but Jesus is the Son. Moses and Elijah are but messengers when Jesus is the message. Jesus is the living Word of God. The living Word of God visible to all human beings. Moses and Elijah are the tools of God. Jesus is the reason for it all, for creation and for the mission. I think we also need to make sure, to be honest to Scripture, we need to make sure that we see the transfiguration of Jesus and connect it with Moses' own transfiguration experience. Today was read in the first lesson when Nini was reading that Moses goes up a mountain, very similar. He goes up with Joshua, kind of similar. Jesus had three, Moses had one. And he comes down, he meets with God, and he comes down with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The problem is when he comes down the mountain, he finds the people down below worshiping a golden calf. And he breaks the two tablets of stone. And, you know, things go on. I'm not going to go too much into that. But he goes back up, and God rewrites the Ten Commandments and gives him tablets of stone. And out of the experience of being with God, Moses comes down the mountain, and his face begins to shine in a way that he had never shined before, to the point that people also become afraid, and so he has to put a, a, a veil so that they are not afraid to approach him. I think it's important that we connect this experience of Jesus with that experience of Moses, because there's a lot of similarities. But there's also, we need to be able to connect the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of Elijah. Elijah was kind of a, a, a head prophet, one who did a whole lot of very big, miraculous events. For God against the Baals, feeding the, the widow's, uh, or healing the, 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 the widow's son, feeding those that were hungry and getting ready to die. Elijah did great, powerful miracles. And Jesus also was a great miracle worker. So there are similarities between these two people, or between these three people, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. However, however, this is where Peter stuck his foot in his mouth. Because he's trying to equate them all as if the three of them were the same. And he wants to build, build three booths. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. He's just trying to make something out of something he can't grasp. And he wants to make Jesus all the same as Moses and Elijah. 
And clearly, they're not the same. In fact, Moses and Elijah were not transfigured. Jesus was the one transfigured. Jesus was the one. And there seems to be in the story as if Moses and Elijah kind of are subservient to Jesus. They come to speak with him. They come to share with him. But he is the son. He is the son. Moses represents the law. He's the lawgiver. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The law would be nothing without fulfillment, and Jesus fulfills the law. Moses, uh, Elijah represents the prophets, but Jesus, Jesus is the answer to all of the prophetic messages. All of the prophetic advancements of things to come. All of the prophets pointed to Messiah. Jesus is the answer to the prophetic call. Jesus is the answer. Elijah just points. Jesus is the answer. But not only that. The Father himself declares the difference between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. The Father speaks from the cloud that covered the mountain, and he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him, not to Moses, not to Elijah, but to him who is the fulfillment of all that Moses wrote, to him who is the answer to all the prophets proclaimed. Listen to him. That comes from the Father, and that immediately puts a difference and a distance between the law, the prophets, and Jesus. Between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. There creates a difference. This is the Son. These two others are messengers that have done my job, have done what I asked them to do. They did it faithfully, and they're now in glory, but this is my Son. And I am so pleased with him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Years later, years later, the person who wrote Second Peter's, the second letter to Peter, who may very well have been Peter himself, and if it wasn't Peter himself, it may have been a disciple of Peter who was still writing what Peter shared with him. But this is the testimony of the writer of Second Peter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The writer of Second Peter, speaking for Peter, and if it was Peter who wrote the second letter of Peter, he is testifying that what he saw, he saw. He is witnessing to the veracity and the truth of the transfiguration of what he saw and of what he heard, and he knows who Jesus Christ is. That is where we are today in celebrating, observing this momentous occasion in the life of Jesus that divides his whole life and divides his ministry between early and later ministry. So the question that I would have for you and the question I have for myself is how do we apply the teachings and the learning of the transfiguration to our lives? What do we learn from here? Where do we go from here? And the first thing I want to tell you, the first thing that applies to me and how I would apply the transfiguration or the event of the transfiguration is that the first thing that happens is that I am filled with humble adoration. And I do choose those two words very carefully. I am filled with humble adoration that the Son of the living God, who was fully divine, fully in glory, fully served by angels, archangels, and everything in heaven, that that Son of God that is divine in every way has chosen to become a human being, a man so that you and I one day can be in that glory. That fills me with humble adoration that God would so much love you and me, that Christ will, like Paul says in Philippians, empty himself of glory, empty himself of all that he was in the heavens at the right hand of the Father with the Holy Trinity and that he would take the form of a servant and become a man and submit himself to crucifixion and abuse so that you and I can have hope and the assurance of eternal life and glory in heaven. And the first thing I get out of the transfiguration is humble adoration that you and I could be worth so much to our Father in heaven that he's willing to become man, though he was always the divine Son of God. That's the first thing I get out of this passage. The second thing I get out of this passage 
is the reality of who Jesus is. The revelation, the, the explosion of who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just a man, he was the God-man. He was God in the flesh. And here he reveals it in a way that the disciples would never forget. And years later, they bear witness and even die for the things they have seen and heard. That Jesus is not just a man that we can converse with, pray to, think about us walking next to us. He is much more than that. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God the Son of the living God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, there. That's who Jesus is. Not a teacher, not a prophet, but God in the flesh. And the transfiguration leads me to that faith and that belief in the fullness of who Jesus is. In fact, Colossians, I love Colossians, because of the way it reveals Jesus. Colossians says that he not only is the Son of God, in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, he is the image of the invisible. The image of the invisible God. I want you to look with me at Colossians for a moment. He, Jesus, is. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is the visible of the invisible. Hear me. Jesus is the visible of the invisible. He's the touchable of the untouchable. Jesus, as a human being, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or whether dominions or whether rulers or whether authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is, that in him, that in everything he might be preeminent, that in everything he may be the first, that in everything he would be above and superior to all other things, that in everything he would be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul tells us Jesus is the fullness of deity living in him dwelling bodily. Jesus is fully God, fully God. The radiance that he demonstrated at the transfiguration is the radiance he always had before and the radiance that he still has now in the presence of God and the radiance he's coming back with. But he's the man who knows you and knows me and is like us and understands suffering and understands death, and understands betrayal, and understands all the pains and the hungers and the thirst, 
and everything that human beings go through and understand sin and weakness. Though he never sinned, he understands it because he is one of us. But he is God in the flesh. And the third thing that I learned from the transfiguration, the third thing I learned from the transfiguration is that I need to obey the Father. And the Father commands it not only to Peter and James and John, he commands it to us that we need to listen to Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I need to listen to all that Jesus taught. I have to listen to all that Jesus commanded. I have to listen to everything that Jesus has asked of me. I need to listen and obey, and there's no excuse to not do so. When it is the Father's will, when it is the Father's command, that we who experience Jesus in all of his glory need to listen to him and obey. That is what the Father said to Peter and James and John. This is my son. Listen to him. No excuse, no excuse to not listen to the teachings, leadings of our God and of our Lord. That is our journey today going on to Lent. To listen to Jesus and to obey his word to us. I have no excuses for you. It is out of our sinfulness that we many times do not listen or obey. And that sinfulness needs to be confessed. And we need to recommit ourselves that if Jesus truly is who he showed himself to be, I humbly fall at his feet and adore him. And I stand to listen and to obey and to follow what my Lord is saying without excuse from anyone who claims to follow Jesus. Otherwise, I'm being disobedient to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. That is the event of the transfiguration in Mount Hermon. And now we go on to a holy, purposeful, focused Lenten season. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please.